I'm excited today is Easter. Today is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If Jesus had not risen, there would be no Christianity. There would be no salvation. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no everlasting life with God. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at who this God is that we worship. So go ahead and have your Bibles ready. Acts 17 will be there in just a few moments. And before we do that, I want to give just a couple goals that I have. One, if you're a believer, I pray that today your love and your knowledge of God will deepen. I pray that you will taste and see the very goodness of God in his word today. And if you're an unbeliever, my hope is that your worldview will be greatly challenged. In fact, my hope is that your worldview will crumble under the infinite weight of God's glory. I admit I'm biased. I put all the cards on the table. I believe there is no greater news than knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so like a, a moth drawn to a flame, I pray that your heart would be drawn to the infinite love and grace of Jesus Christ. And so let me give a little bit of context about where we're going today. We're going to be looking at a sermon that Paul gives. Paul is one of the writers of the New Testament. He went on many missionary journeys proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the cities he went to was a place called Athens. Now, Athens was the most culturally elite, sophisticated city of its day. It was the home of great thinkers like Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. It was filled with beauty and art and temples and architecture and so much more. It would be comparable to present-day cities like New York, uh, Vienna, Barcelona, London, Paris. It was also the home of many religious groups. Two of them are actually named in the word today. So what I want to do is go ahead and define them for you. Uh, one is the Epicureans. Now the Epicureans are deists. They believe God is far removed from society. They do not believe in everlasting life. And thus their goal is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. Then we have the Stoics. The Stoics are pantheists. They believe that God is in everything. He's in the plants and the bushes and the trees and everything else. Uh, the, the Stoics believe you can explain everything through logic and reason. They are fatalists. They believe life is simply just the cards that you were dealt. It's by chance. And so if we were to summarize, you either believe that God is so big that he's unknowable or that he is so near that he really becomes limited in his, in his power and he's impersonal. Now, neither one of these gods are worthy of worship. And thus, man then becomes the, the center of his focus. And our pursuit becomes our pleasure. We explain everything through logic and reason. So this is the, the religious culture that Paul's about to speak to. Now, I just want you to think, how similar is that to our culture today? That is very similar to agnosticism, which is, very, which is basically functional atheism. It's similar to New Ageism, to Eastern thought. To the very thoughts that fill our society, that's what Paul was addressing 2,000 years ago. And thus, he's really addressing us today. And so I would ask you, to the extent that we looked at just these two religious groups, how similar are they to what you might believe? And so uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at, so who is the God of the Bible? Who is this God that Paul is now going to explain and to proclaim to the Athenians. And so what we're going to do is go ahead and read Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read God's word. Verse 16. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What there you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples by man, nor is he served by human hands as, they, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and the hope that they might find their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from, from each one of us. For in him we live and move have, and have our own being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed him. Among those were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray, and we'll look at God's word. Father, my prayer today is that you would help us to know you. Help us to see that there is no God greater than you. Help us to see that you are the one true God. May we behold your glory today. May our hearts leap with joy as we see you, as we behold you, as our minds are filled with the knowledge of you today in your word. May your spirit work in our hearts. God, give life today. In your name, Jesus, amen. What I want to point out first is how Paul is gentle in his tone and kind with his words. Here, Paul is, in verse 16, it says that his spirit is provoked. And the word provoked means anger. He's hot. He's seeing all these people worship false gods. And he's angry at this idolatry. And yet when he speaks to them, he's gentle, he's kind, and he's respectful. Now, this is not always the case. Uh, Many Christians 
have great zeal, but have little love and self-control towards others. And so when you speak to them, it's like putting your hand on a frying pan. It hurts. You don't ever want to do it again. And so for that, I want to apologize. The gospel should never be proclaimed out of anger and arrogance. And so if you've been hurt by that, I apologize. There's no excuse. But what I also want to say is please don't throw out the message of the gospel because it was miscommunicated. Truth is still truth regardless of how it was communicated. You might not like gravity the first time it was explained to you, but if you go jump off a rock or, or the roof of a house, you're going to find out that gravity is still true. And so today I want to urge you, listen to the word of God today. And what we're going to do is we're going to see how Paul, he was proclaiming the gospel in Athens. People began to hear him. They invited him to this place called the Areopagus, where religion and philosophical ideas were debated. And he is going to proclaim the gospel. And we're told in verse 24 that as he was walking through the city, he saw that there was an altar to an unknown God. And so when he stands before them, he says, you know that altar you have to the unknown God? I'm going to make him known to you today. I want you to know the one true God of the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at five truths about who God is that Paul gives us. Number one, God is creator. He is the supreme creator of all that exists. In verse 24, Paul says, God is the one who made the world and everything in it. Now that truth fills scripture from the very beginning to the very end. In fact, Isaiah 40, 28 says, God is the creator of the ends of the earth. In Revelation 4, 11, we're told that God is worthy of all worship because he created everything in this world. The sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the lakes, the rivers, the fish, the bird, the animals, humanity, everything comes from the very will and word of God. Colossians 1 says this, For by Jesus Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God is the creator of everything. Now today, just like 2,000 years ago, man seeks to explain creation apart from God. Man thinks it makes more sense to believe that all that exists is because of the random, chaotic, unguided movement of atoms. And by removing God as the supreme creator, we can then put ourselves in his place. And we become the ones who determine the very purpose of life. But I want you to think how foolish this is. For even the simplest design requires thought. A cake, I had to look this up because I don't make a lot of cakes. A cake requires flour, sugar, eggs, milk, baking powder. That's about it. And yet even the simplicity of a cake, these ingredients must be mixed, must be placed in an oven, and must be taken out at the right time. And surely if this simple design of a cake requires the intentional design uh, the intentional work of a maker, how much more does the complexity of all the universe require a designer, a maker? You see, man in our sinfulness, we're bent on rejecting, on denying the glory of God, the fact that he is our creator. But I urge you, 
Look at the sunrise and sunset. Look at how clouds form. Look at the waves and how they continue to roll into the ocean. Look at a baby as it's born. Listen to its cry. Does not all creation point you to a maker? You and I are here today by design, by purpose. You are not an accident. This world is not an accident. Life is supremely more glorious when we see that we are made by the very hands of God himself. Next, we see that God is ruler. We see this. He sovereignly rules over all creation. Look at verse 24. We read that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now the word Lord means master, ruler, owner, possessor, guardian. Now earlier we said the Epicureans were deists. Deists believe that God is far removed from society, that uh, he's unknowable. Now, many agnostics hold this view of God today, and it's really, uh, it's really a worthless view that's no different than atheism. For if there's a God, but he is uninterested or preoccupied or unable to give attention to the things of the earth, then surely he is not a God worthy to be worshipped. I don't blame an agnostic for worshiping him. I don't blame anyone for not worshiping that kind of God, for he is quite limited. But just think about what we read when we come to the scriptures. When we come to the Bible, we have a God who holds the oceans in his hand and who can span the cosmos. In Daniel chapter 2, we're told that God is the one who places kings and removes kings. In Psalm 139, we are told that God is the one who knits the baby in the womb. We are told that he is with us in the light, he is with us in the darkness, and that not even death can separate us from him. In Matthew 10, 29, we are told that not even a sparrow falls from the sky without the very knowledge of God. See, in the Bible, we come to a God who is infinitely huge, and yet he knows every intricate part of this world. Do you hear how marvelous this is? This God is powerful. This God is mighty. He's full of knowledge and he fills all of creation. What this means is that there's not one inch in the cosmos in which God does not rule and God does not dwell. Because God is the God and because he is an infinite being, he not only can fill all the universe, rule the entire universe, but it can also be with you and me. And hear this, this is the joy we have. That when we pray to God, he hears us and he answers us because as he rules the cosmos, he also listens to each one of his creatures. He knows us and he listens to us. Now skip down to verse 26. There we read, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered why you live today, in this century, in this decade, in this year? Have you ever wondered why you were born where you were born? Have you ever wondered why you live where you live? Now, if you're a Stoic, you might just say, well, it's all by chance. But here, God's, in God's word, we have no, it's by God's design. You see, God, in his mysterious sovereignty, has determined that you'd be born when you were born and where you were born, which means you are not random. 
You're not an accident. You're a purposeful design formed by the very will of God. You are His handiwork. He formed you and placed you on this earth that you would know Him and live for Him and glorify Him. He sovereignly rules over all space and time. We ought to rejoice in this God, Creator and Ruler. Now next we see that God is the giver of life. You see, in his self-sufficiency, he sustains all of creation. Look at verses 24 and 25. This truth is so good. It says, God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. You see, so many religions believe that, that they must appease their God. They must give sacrifices to their God as a way of earning his pleasure or, or a way of serving and making him happy. But when we come to the Bible, we come to a God, uh, we come to a God who is perfect and infinitely self-sufficient meaning he has no needs. You see, God did not create you and me and all of his creation out of loneliness, nor did he do it to simply demonstrate his power or to have something to rule over. He created out of the overflow of his glory and wisdom and splendor and power. He created that we might internally enjoy him and his wonder and his majesty. But see, while he is self-sufficient, we are not. We require oxygen. We require food. We, can, we require the continual working of our organs. We are a very needy people. But what we have in God's word is we see that God and his self-sufficiency then sustains all of life, gives all of life. In 1 Timothy 6.17 it says, He is the one who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. In Psalm 104, we read that God is the one who causes the grass and the crops to grow. He's the one who provides everything for every part of creation. He's the one who sustains your life, the beating of your heart, the fact that your lungs are breathing in oxygen and pushing it out right now is all the work of God. He is the one who maintains the sun and the planets and the moon and the stars. He is the one who maintains the laws of gravity and physics. You see, in our sin, we reject God. And we think we are the makers of our destiny. We think we are the ones who provide for all that we need. We foolishly boast like a child who for the first time gets on his bike without training training wheels, thinking he has mastered his bike, when in fact the father is running behind him, holding him the entire time, making sure that he does not fall. Hear this. Everything you have comes from God. Everything you possess, every breath that you breathe is a gift from God. And when he does this, because he's relational, full of love, that's our next point. God is relational. He created humanity to be with him. Look at verse 27. It starts with the word that. Paul wants us to see that the God who creates, the God who rules, and the God who gives and provides and sustains all of life, he does it with a purpose. And that purpose is that we would seek him. 
that we would know him, that we would enjoy him at the apex of God's creation and humanity is humanity. In Genesis 1, we see that God speaks all of creation into existence. And then when it comes into the forming of man, the narrative slows down. And we see that God forms man in his image with his hands. We see that God places his mouth over man and breathes life into him that we would be alive and that we would live with him and for him. He does this for our joy, for our glory, because it's only in relationship with the perfect God that our hearts are full of joy. This is why God has made us, that we would be content and satisfied in him. For what else could make us supremely happy other than the infinitely good and great God? This is why our sin is so horrific. Because in our sin, we deny God. We reject God. We invent new gods. We think that we can worship gods with parts of creation like gold and metal and, and create statues and make temples and that these things are what honor God or these things become God. In our sin, we reject that we've been made to be in relationship with God and thus we seek to satisfy ourselves with anything other than God. Like the Epicureans, we try to find our worth and our possessions. We say that pleasure is our greatest pursuit. We think if only we have enough power, if only we have enough respect, then we will be content. But all of this falls short of the very glory that God offers us in relationship with Him. We were created for sharing the grand purpose of being with the very glory of God. There are no substitutes for that. We ought not to settle for things that we can create or conjure up in our minds. We have been made in the image of God. Therefore, we ought to seek Him and know Him and enjoy Him. Why would a fish seek to live on land? It's in the water that He was created to flourish. And just like man was created to be in relationship with God, that is where we will flourish. If we try to live apart from God, to try to find joy apart from being in a relationship with God, the result is no different than the fish trying to live on dry land. There will simply be pain, misery, and death. God has created us to know Him. God has created us to be with Him. And that's what leads us to this last point. That God is judge. He will judge the world in righteousness. So let's just put together all that we've said. God is the one who creates. God is the one who rules over all creation. God is the one who gives life and sustains all of life. And he created you and me to be in a relationship with him that we would share in all of his glory. But then what we see here, there's a problem. We've rejected God. We've denied God. We've worshipped everything but God. And we think that there's no punishment for that, especially if we deny him, then surely there's no consequence. But that's not true. In God's word, we see that God has his supreme wrath against humanity because we have rejected him, because we have denied him, because the glory that we should have given to him, we gave to everything else. So what hope do we have? What hope is there? Well, this is 
the God who is supremely good and supremely great and supremely, uh, supremely uh, glorious is also gracious. He's gracious. Do you know that? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to die on a cross, that we could be forgiven of our sins and that we could be uh, forgiven and have eternal life with him. Jesus came to stand in your place and my place, that as he was nailed to the cross, that he would absorb every drop of God. So that by faith in Him, when we believe in Him, we would be forgiven. We would receive peace from God. We would have His righteousness upon us. We're told that if we believe in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. We are made citizens in His kingdom, promised to share in His glory for all of eternity. Now look at verse 30. In verse 30, we see that the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So hear this. As creator and ruler, God is calling us to repent. Hear this. God is not uninterested in this creation. He's not uninterested in you. He made you. He knit you in your mother's womb that you would know him, that you would love him. He's calling for you right now to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Experience his forgiveness. Enter into his joy. Share in his glory. The proper response to God is repentance and worship. That is the right response. And know this. A day is coming in which he will judge the world. And he's going to judge it in righteousness. Now, this is not a righteousness that you can attain. It's not a righteousness that we determine. It's one that God has determined. And it's supremely higher than we can ever reach, which is why his son left heaven, left glory and splendor, and came to earth because we can't get to him. And therefore, he came to us as the God-man that he would be a perfect substitute going to the cross, paying for our punishment, that we could have life, that we could be made righteous. Because we have no hope of getting to God apart from Jesus Christ. And if we don't believe in him, we're told that there is a day of judgment. And on that day, your spouse, your possessions, your job, your achievement... They will not be able to save you. On that day, the things you trust in will be like clinging to the wind. On that day, you will be left bare and naked before the great judge and king. On that day, your belief will be put on full display and you will suffer the eternal judgment of an infinitely powerful, glorious God. Like a candle before, before the wind, so you will be snuffed out by the very judgment of God. We cannot resist the very wrath of God in ourselves. To try to do so is like a man trying to hold back a tsunami. It will not happen. God's wrath will crush all who have not believed in His Son, Jesus Christ, which is why He sent Him in His glory and His greatness and His goodness and His grace. 
that we would believe in him. I urge you, do not delay in repentance. You can come up with many excuses. You can say, I'm too busy to think of such matters. You can look at your business, your home, your finances. You can say, I'm okay. But none of those give security on that day. To think otherwise is to think that paper can resist fire. Do not look at the gifts of God to save you. Look to the giver. Look to God. Jesus Christ is our hope. And how do we know about this day of judgment? Paul says at the end of verse 31, notice, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, who was raised? Jesus. When was he risen? 2,000 years ago. This is why we celebrate Easter. It's because God sent Jesus to die on a cross so we would have hope, so we would not suffer his wrath, but that we would be brought into his eternal glory and joy and be satisfied and can be content with him for all of eternity. That's what we celebrate on Easter, the hope of Jesus at the cross. Jesus paid for our sins, and at the empty tomb, he has risen, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Let us not reject the goodness and the greatness of the supremely glorious God. Let us not reject him for lesser, earthly, finite treasures that will all pass away. There is none greater than the God of the Bible. There is no God who compares to him. He has made you that you would find joy and contentment and satisfaction in him alone. Now look at verse 32. Some people mocked Paul when he began to speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They said, that doesn't happen. They dismissed him. They said he was ridiculous. Dead people don't rise from the grave. But let me ask you, with what wisdom were they using right then? Was that the same wisdom as the deist who says, God is so far away from us, he's unknowable? Is that the same wisdom as the pantheist that said, God and the universe are mixed together, so he's in the plants and the rocks and the grass and the trees? Is that the same wisdom that says, you and I are simply the random collision of atoms? There's no purpose or design behind us? Why would I want to believe in that? And that wisdom, is that not the wisdom that, Bi that the Bible says is under the very judgment of God? For when we come to the Bible, we see a God who has the power to create with his words, the power to rule over every part of creation, who is able to fill all of creation with his presence, that he knows and sees everything. We see a God who is the one who is able to provide and sustain life at all moments. For if a God is able to do that, surely he is able to also rise from the dead. So why would I trust in the worldly wisdom when we have a God who through God's word we see is glorious and great in every way? So I want you to know that when you trust in Jesus Christ, he is the one who rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and saying, you are forgiven from your sins. Now, you might be listening to this and you say, look, but I have a host of sins. I have done a lot of things. I don't think God would want me, and I'm not even sure he actually could forgive me. Well, I want you to know that the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, his blood is sufficient to cover 
every single one of your sins. There is nothing you can do that is too great for the blood of Christ. Just come before him, repent and believe, and you are forgiven. Now, you might be here as a Christian, and you're saying, you know, I've been wrestling with anger. I've been wrestling with lust. I've been wrestling with these sins. I don't know if I can stop them. I want you to know that the very power of God, who not only spoke creation, who rules creation, sustains creation, who rose Jesus from the dead, the power of the resurrection is now at work in you, that you would not be a slave to sin, but that you would be a son of of God. So know this. Know this, that there is hope, there is victory, there is life in Jesus Christ. So repent and believe in Jesus, for there is none greater than our God. Let us behold him and let us enjoy the Lord, our God, our maker. Let me pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are the creator. We praise you that you are the ruler and sustainer of life. And we praise you that you've made us so that we would be formed in your image and be in a relationship with you. And Lord, we praise you that not only are you great and glorious, but you are gracious. And you have sent your son Jesus to die so that we would have hope. And he rose from the dead that we would have assurance that when we believe in him, we are saved, forgiven, and Lord, now in Christ, we are conquerors. We are not slaves to sin, but we are sons of you. And Lord, we praise you, knowing with absolute confidence that our, our destiny, that Lord, we will spend eternity with you. So we praise you. And I pray that whoever listens to this today, that Lord, they would repent and believe in you. And that we all would grow in our love and knowledge of you. For Lord, there is none like you. There is none greater than you. You are the one true God. We praise you and we worship you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.